0: Welcome to Enemies of the People, a podcast about extremism in the 21st century. Hello Frenemies, it's me Maria Norris and welcome to Season 2 of Enemies of the People. Happy New Year everyone! I was planning on doing a sort of 2021 retrospective in December, but sadly I got very sick and lost my voice completely so I couldn't record anything. That's why the podcast is also coming to you one week late, I'm sorry. I am starting 2022 thinking about one thing and one thing only, disruption. We are entering the third year of a pandemic that has been so badly mismanaged, causing hundreds of thousands of unnecessary deaths fascism and extremism continue to rise and everywhere everyone is living in a state of insecurity and anxiety. I myself suffer from mental health issues and they are euphemistically called an adjustment disorder. Of course my adjustment is disordered, I don't want to adjust to living in a world such as this. I want to live in a better world and I think we will achieve this through disruption disrupting the narrative that everything is okay and disrupting the fiction that we live in an equal society. And this podcast is my own form of disruption, my attempt to discuss extremism and fascism plainly with you and all of our guests. So it is in the spirit of disruption that I am proud and excited to introduce you to our guest this week, Professor Sunny Singh, Professor Singh is a writer, an academic and an author. She is a preeminent decolonial public intellectual and the author of one of my favourite books of the last few years, Hotel Arcadia. Professor Singh is also one of the creators of the Jalak Prize, a literary award celebrating books by black and other minority writers underrepresented in the publishing industry here in the UK. Sunny and I talked about writing, academia, the empire and the importance of stories as a form of disruption. So, without further ado, here's Professor Sunny Singh.
1: I am Sunny
0: Singh.
1: I'm an author, an academic, and probably lots more things.
0: But I'm, <laughs> I'm sure that will come up. It's funny, isn't it? When we ask, when we are asked to introduce ourselves, we try to position our identities in different orders. Like, yeah. how do we? How do we introduce ourselves in this situation? What's the the thing that we need to prioritize? It's funny, isn't it? I
1: mean, I suppose I should start by also including my title, given the fact that I'm one of very, very, very few women of color to hold it. So I am a professor and it's a very, very tiny minority in higher education in Britain. So that is also part of an identity. But I just feel that, you know, the academic is kind of covers it. I always feel like, you know, My primary professional identity
0: is that of an author. Um, That's what I'd like to think. Would you say then that um, (laughs) academia is a hostile environment?
1: Oh, I would just, I would say that regardless. Mm. I I think at any given point you are coming in to any industry that is a part, first of all, is part of a capitalist, white supremacist, heteropatriarchal society, if you don't conform to any of those categories and if you're not part of that or are excluded on any of the margins and any of the axis, you're already operating in a hostile environment. So that's a starting point. We all are, or most of us are, let's say, who are not valued in that in that structure. But I think academia is historically been one of the bastions of that structure. It's been one of the bastions of colonial imperial knowledge production, which has then fed back into maintaining and upholding and reinforcing the colonial structures. It's been a bastion of production of knowledge that has um, upheld and reinforced and maintained other forms, whether it's the heteropatriarchy or it's the capitalist structure that excludes the working class, the women, queer people, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, the multiple margins. So when we come into academia, of course, we're coming into a hostile system. It's an absolutely a hostile environment. And I think we would be foolish to assume anything else. I think that's one of the ways to be able to navigate academia in that case is to be very aware that you're going into a hostile environment rather than trying to, in some ways, comfort ourselves that somehow this is is going to be great. Because by our very entrance into that space, by just existing in that space, by entering that space, we are disrupting those structures. So absolutely.
0: I think I started as a student very excited and in many ways naive did my PhD and all of it but the moment I started trying to incorporate questions of the empire and openly talking about white supremacy and white nationalism on my PhD thesis and then on trying to publish on it and then in classes it always got that pushback you know it was you can talk about how um discriminatory the UK counterterrorism strategy is but don't bring the empire into it or don't yeah. say that it's a, you know, it's a re- direct result of empire or, as, you know, as a modern form of coloniality. Don't talk about, we can talk about racism in the classroom. But there's no need to talk about whiteness and white supremacy. That's taking it too far. So it was as I moved through the system and moved from a PhD student to starting to teach and all of it, that I really started to see that academia is not really As much as it professes to be open to new ideas and to have, you know, to be about academic freedom and well, academic freedom is quite the term these days, but about questioning things. It's so much of it is about producing knowledge that maintains the status quo. And that has been quite a realization for me to have and that um, for me to exist in academia in a way that I think it's authentic to me, but also to my students is to try to disrupt that as much as possible. But that by trying to disrupt it, you keep them coming across these barriers of people saying there's no need to talk about whiteness. Why take it there when we're talking in class? When we're teaching a class about racism, it's fine to talk about blackness and black history and all of it. But don't mention whiteness because that might make the students uncomfortable.
1: Yeah, that is very true. And let's be honest, the standing joke in this country is don't talk about the war you know, when you're at a pub. But I think even a bigger issue is never talk about the empire. At least people can joke about the war. But you definitely, you know, if you ever want to kill a conversation, a social conversation in this country, is you talk about the empire. And it's very interesting because the empire will be brought up, but it's always brought up in this kind of diluted, whitewashed, kind of sentimentalized way. So the numbers of times... I run into people, and very lovely people, not just in academia, but just just in multiple industries, including writing, um, publishing, so on, arts, and people would be just delighted, And, and these are sort of white Britons who will be like, oh, well, my grandmother was born in India, my grandfather, you know, worked in India, we have family history in India. And, of course, what they don't want to then talk about, and you go, well, when was this? And you do realize that if it was prior to 1947, they were there as imperial colonial administrators and a part of the, that that oppressive apparatus. And they don't want to talk about it. They don't want to accept that because it's nice. It kind of having that the grandmother born in India or the grandfather who served in Bombay or whatever is meant to provide a little bit of global appeal and kind of, you know, flag up some kind of a pseudo-cosmopolitan credit. But what it once you ask that additional question, then it starts, it gets them very uncomfortable. And part of it is because of course, that requires a confrontation with, The empire and imperial history, and the fact that when Britons were living, whether it's you know Kenya or Zimbabwe or India or Singapore or Hong Kong or you know Jamaica, these were imperial processes, these were imperial officials enacting and enforcing imperial oppression and obviously that becomes really problematic to then address and so it's easier to to try and sentimentalize it to romanticize it rather than accept that there is this very very problematic history and the sad part is that I think if we were to accept that we would do better conversation would go better. My grandparents were born in colonial you know, colonized India. I hold no animus towards individual Britons. I live here. I'm quite happy to, you know, be part of the processes. I, you know, I'm I'm here. I do want us to confront our history so we can actually have a more trusting and trusted conversation and move forward with not just interpersonal, but collective relationships that are based on justice. But that can't happen if one side's just sort of like, we shall never talk about the empire.
0: For me, I think one of the results of never being able to talk about the empire is that very few people, unless you're affected by it, realize that in many ways we're still living under imperial. Mm -hmm constructions and not just the immigration system but the ins- institutionalized racism the UK counterterrorism terrorism strategy just like there are so many things that are in place to maintain the order of the empire and to control people the way yeah. they're supposed to be controlled you know racialized bodies have less access to the spoils of empire Ooh. and when the spoils of empire the origins of empires only happen because of what was wrought on racialized bodies so the fact that we can't talk about it allows people to think that it's over rather than seeing the modern ways in which empire is expressed
1: yeah well I mean I always think about one of the, the points that always makes me rethink the ways in which we are all complicit so prior to the 2008 banking bailout the prior to that the largest state bailout was, for the end of slave trade and of course that bailout was not for the people who were enslaved but to the people who did the enslaving. Now what I find really fascinating is that of course that bailout was not kind of it didn't come directly from the treasury it was sort of set up so it was paid off and I think if I remember correctly the last payment was made in 2015, which, of course, when you look at it, you say, "Okay, that's what it is. But when you stop and say, well, that means every member of the British Empire, regardless of whether we were on this aisle or not, paid for that bailout. If we paid taxes, if we lived here before 2015, we paid for that bailout and that makes all of us even though we are living how you know this many you know years later 200 years or so later to nearly two centuries later in some way we have all been made complicit in that and i think when you start rethinking that process instead of kind of leaving it as, oh, we ended the slave trade and then we outlawed slavery and what a glorious moment. You start thinking of the very long tail. It it does mean that all of us on this planet alive today were made complicit in this process. And we have all paid for it. We've all paid those who not only enslaved in the early in the 200 you know in the era itself but who benefited from it and then benefited from the bailout and then continued those colonial hegemonic processes so in in a sense we've all been made complicit for our own destruction and oppression and and violence that has been committed against us and i think those are the kinds of conversations we should have not, you know, it's not about guilt and who did bad things and some kind of a checklist or, or a balance sheet. It's about thinking about how do we move past that? How do we move past? Because when, you know, one of the things this country loves to talk about, especially when it comes to the former colonies, is we have shared histories. So the numbers of times that, you know, British politicians, press, diplomats, you know development aid workers i mean everyone oh we have shared history well wonderful but our shared history isn't such a straightforward one so can we talk about how and this process of being made forced to be complicit in one of the most if not the most heinous genocidal events that lasted for 400 years And then we were forced to become complicit with that. And those of us alive today are still had been forced to be complicit. That's a shared history. And for me, what's interesting is to think about how once we recognize how we were all forced into complicity, into collusion, then there is no point in having the conversation about guilt because in in different ways we've all been implicated. So, yes, you know, somebody who is white working class in sort of Manchester, went down to the gold mines, you know, was in the steel mills as complicit as someone like my grandparents, who were forced to pay taxes to the empire, so that that could potentially open up a space for us to have a conversation that moves past the checklist and the balance sheets and the straightforward guilt and, you know, fairness and innocence and all of those, and and remove it from that sentimentalized, emotive field, the kind of that. That sort of affective ways of um, confronting the situation and move to a much more rigorous ethical scale. And I think that's what we need to do. And we have we need to all work towards it. Otherwise, we'll be constantly repeating this over and over again.
0: enemies I want to thank each and every one of you for listening and downloading our episodes even during the break between our seasons. I was amazed to go and check some analytics of the show and see that so many of you had been downloading and listening to us during the holiday period and I am so grateful and so excited and so happy to be back. And now that we're back, you can help us once again climb the charts and beat Nigel Farage and his their podcasts. Make sure that you rate and review our show and share it to everyone you know. That will really help us not only climb the charts, but cement our position as one of the top politics podcasts in the United Kingdom. I also wanted to announce that our January book club pick is *Strongmen: How They Rise, Why They Succeed and How They Fall by Ruth ben ghiat Ruth will be our guest for next week's episode of the podcast, so stay tuned for that you can join our book club and get access to the exclusive live zoom book club meeting by becoming a monthly supporter of the show over at coffee and if you feel like buying me a virtual coffee because you're enjoying the show so much please feel free to do so the link is in the episode description i really appreciate everything that you do for the show every time you listen download and talk about it and tweet about it anything so thank you so much and I cannot wait to show you the rest of season two. Now, back to the show. You're an author. To what extent do you think that all of this is is ingrainedly linked to a failure of storytelling, of um, the stories that are told about the empire in the media? How much do you think that that failure of imagination, that failure of storytelling plays a role into the situation we're all in right now when it comes to this denial of our history, essentially.
1: I wouldn't call it a failure. The reason I wouldn't call it a failure is because when we say failure, there is an assumption that we tried. There is an assumption that we tried to do something and we tried, or there was at least at some place an intention to succeed. This is not a failure of imagination. This is a deliberate excision of imagination. This could also be called, therefore, a learned, developed, nurtured paucity of imagination. And so, yes, absolutely, you know, the fact that we don't get the story, that we are still not able to publish stories that do not automatically go into kind of large nostalgia. If stories that don't conform to it are somehow seen as radical, and, and that's a strange process. But, and it's not only about stories that are sort of historical fiction set in, a, in the past. But as we said about early, earlier about academic conversations, is the same thing with creative work the fact that we cannot fathom that there is a link between what happened before in multiple places overseas as well as here in britain that because of britain's history it is inextricably linked with historical oppressions and and primarily three phenomena, slave trade, empire, genocide. And that every time we we must confront anything, it needs to, it, it, that, that underpins it. So when you're going to write that novel, which is all about, you know, a weekend away in country with, you know, friends who have met, After Oxford 20 years later, and now they're going to have their their moment of you know coming, you know, confronting mortality. Whatever that country home is, has been built on empire slave trade and genocide. That cannot be removed. So unless we can confront it, there's always going to be in those. Very Denton Abbey esque beautiful spaces—a rather large elephant or rhino, or pick your, you know—and and the failure to confront it or is not simply a failure; it's a refusal. And so when we, when I talk, think about, it and when I say, it's the excision of imagination, or the paucity of imagination, and learned paucity. It's also a paucity of ethics, and it's a refusal and denial of any kind of ethical commitment, not only to a kind of, you know, wonderful decolonizing kind of buzzword, but to the British individual and collective selves. Because frankly, you know what, the colonies or the former colonies, they're getting on in different ways for good and for bad, still kind of battling the the various ongoing imperial processes. But they're kind of confronting it and trying to move on. And I think one of the ways that I think about how things have quite spectacularly been excised is when we look at that wonderful word from the that came up in the 70s and the 80s, post-colonial literature. As an undergraduate, I always argued that why were these post-colonial literatures? Why was the term always applied and these literatures were supposed to arrive from the former colonies? We were already confronting our post-coloniality. The, the people, the systems, the organizations, the institutions, the nations, who didn't want to confront it were the colonizers. So we don't like to talk about post-coloniality of Britain, of France, of Spain, of Italy, of Germany, of Austria. And we need to, because the post-colonial processes are being lived out politically, economically, demographically, culturally, whether they like it or not. And I think they have chosen to pretend they need not confront it. And the elephant, or whichever the exotic animal you choose, is getting more and more difficult to ignore. That's really what it comes down to. So that's where I would sit on that. And yes, the stories haven't been
0: told. In that case, then it follows that the the creative industries as a whole, the publishing industry in particular, is also a hostile environment. I have said this before. And yes,
1: publishing industry is a hostile environment and for very similar reasons. You know, there's there's a very kind of superficial, mythologized idea of free speech, which I find kind of... If it weren't so tragic, I would laugh. But it is. You know, most people who talk and shout very loudly tend to do it from pages of national dailies or like sort of major, you know, opinion and interview pro- programs on national television. So I always find that quite funny. The great silenced ones with their national platforms. Absolutely, absolutely. And the, the, the more you get silenced, the more you get paid and the more appearances you get in national press, which is which is quite impressive. But I think if you move past that superficial conversation around, oh, free speech. Once again, we forget that Publishing was part of the wider propaganda discursive apparatus. So academia produced knowledge. How was it disseminated? Again, these are, you know, so we should be decolonizing the publishing industry. I know I hear this kind of like oh, big, big kind of oh no, gasp, scare, scare when I if I say it in a publishing environment but that's exactly that needs to happen and it's not something that i can do or another person can do but it's for people who are in the industry to recognize that they have been part of a very long trajectory that is imperial and what they need to do is find ways to reflect on it to confront it and overcome it so they can actually function having confronted this this shared history if you want to call it um, until then it's going to be hostile
0: yeah and it makes me think of this whole thing about you know decolonizing the curriculum and how some people think that that means just having more diverse reading lists and um, adding people to reading lists is the easiest thing to do it's not what we mean when we're talking about decolonializing the curriculum. That is just cosmetic in many ways. Yeah.
1: Well, I I don't think decolonizing the curriculum is is some kind of an end-all in itself. It's a small starting step, but it's only the first step. What we don't talk about is decolonizing pedagogy. We don't talk about decolonizing praxis. We don't talk about decolonizing citations. All of the parts that make up academic work and academic life require that same process. So I agree. You can't just sort of say, well, we have now added four people out of 16, and now that's my tick box, and it's done, because that's not how it works. If it's going to be taught the same exact way, if it's not going to necessarily confront the complicated issues in other texts. So there is no reason why you need to remove Dickens from the syllabus. That is not what decolonizing means. It's simply adding Sam Sullivan doesn't do anything. You need a much more critical, theoretical, philosophical engagement with that process and with teaching of those steps. Otherwise, you know, unless you're also questioning what made up the canon, what were the processes involved, what are the processes required to undo that, what was the impact of constructing this canon? We're not, we're, you know, we're not doing very much.
0: We're just adding on certain bit of cosmetic gloss. That's it. It's not only about what are we teaching, but how are we teaching and why are we teaching mm-hmm. and what structures are we reinforcing through our teaching? Mm-hmm. But that's much harder, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> and that's what, what's it called? The academic institution bulks at the questions that need to be asked in order to do the work that needs to be done. Well, yes. I mean, I think once we start by
1: recognizing that these are imperial structures, and yes, they will therefore be hostile to any attempt to undo the imperial aspects or the imperial foundations themselves, then you have a much more honest way of proceeding. I think... A large part of this that we experience is a kind of gaslighting at a mass scale, where you have not only, um, you know, I find it fascinating that institutions have suddenly decided that decolonization is the word. So now everybody's decolonizing. I find it fascinating to see academics who. If you look at their publishing record, if you look at what they have produced by way of knowledge, are absolutely fundamentally imperial and have now reinvented themselves in the blink of an eye as decolonial and decolonizing experts. It's a version of what we've been living for the last 20 years where, you know, DEI. Diversity, equality, inclusion—it's a racket. It's a scam. Where, when you think about all the people who are actually the experts, who produce the knowledge, who have the experience, who constructed the work, aren't the ones who are speaking and talking and training and providing the guidance and leading these great programs? You know, because because I think the, at the end of it, what the institution wants to do is to provide a gloss without actually fundamentally changing and the only way it can do that is by this gaslighting process where where these these words and concepts are adopted hollowed out emptied of meaning and then regurgitated in meaningless ways and that is that is a fundamental part of this process because what it is intended to do is to stop any real change from happening you know i think if you if you can spend enough resources so time energy money people talking about change you never have to make it
0: and then you look like you're doing something about it when you're really Mm -hmm. not exactly and that's why i always think you know these things are working exactly as they're designed to work it's not a coincidence it's not a failing of it as you said you know it's it's a design. It's a feature of their own design and that's why they work this way. Yeah. I wanted to ask as well about the Jalak Prize. How, to what extent was it created to disrupt this hostile environment of the publishing industry?
1: Well, it's meant to disrupt at every level that we can we can get to. It's a prize, but it's also a lobby group. It's it's an exercise in disruption. It's, it's an exercise in troublemaking. To quote Representative John Lewis from the civil rights movement in the States, we make good trouble. And we like to continue making the trouble, because there's much to be done, and you know,. For, I think what is good, and we've been very fortunate, is that we are a community initiative. So we have we are supported, we exist because of volunteers because of all our resources are community granted community provided you know so all the ways people are involved is about the community it gives us something really special where we are absolutely independent from all processes of institutions in multiple ways i mean obviously we are we are guided by certain legal constraints and so on but we are not constrained by publishers and publishing industry, we are not constrained by grant, grant giving bodies, we are not constrained by corporates, etc, etc, etc. In some ways, we can then function kind of, in you know, a as the road player, the, because our only commitment, the only people, the only accountability we have is to our community of fellow writers and readers and especially writers of color so it's it's very free but in some ways it also is you know there there's the the, the difficult side so you know it takes a lot of work from a lot of us or a few of us it's we don't necessarily we can't grow as necessarily as we as fast and quickly as we could but I think what it gives us in exchange is far more important which is the ability to function and tell the tell truth to power without favor or fear because there is nothing that we can be influenced by and that's i think
0: that's a very unique and in many ways a powerful place to be absolutely adore Um, it ever since it was founded I love it I always look forward to the long list and the short list coming up and seeing what I haven't read yet to add immediately to my to read list because it's the books are always the stories that are chosen the books that are chosen are always so much better and so much different than what is the mainstream is pushing. And I remember a few years ago, I was, I was pregnant with my daughter and I, I hit a reading slump. I was like, everything I'm reading is boring. Everything I'm reading is the same. This was about five, six years ago. And then I made a decision, you know, like from now on, I'm only going to read books written by women and primarily books written by women of color, because I cannot stand reading the same thing over and over again. And um I'm not saying this, you know, as like, oh, go, go, me, but like there was a marked change in the stories that I was reading and in the books that I was reading. But it took it took an effort, you know. I had to go out and look yeah. for those books. It just completely changed my reading. I'm not I'm trying to fly a flag for myself or anything like that. But what I'm trying to say by this is that. It's not readily available if you're not going out there and okay. looking for it. Okay. It's, um, you have, you know, perhaps a few very lucky, very fortunate writers that hit the mainstream. But if you want to actively to, to read books by women of color, by people of color, you do have to search for them because they're not in the mainstream. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, that's one of
1: the things that we were very clear that from from very quickly on or very early on, we noticed you wouldn't find books by writers of color in most bookshops or they would be you know they weren't on the tables they weren't at waterstones they still often aren't but much better now than than they used to be you would still you would go through windows even in london you know and you would stand i would stand outside and 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 watch and and look through. And, you know, if you saw righteous of color in in the windows of even independent bookshops, I mean, it used to be it it was it's a really quite quite a disturbing enterprise, you know, when you when you look at and say, well, so you have to be the Barack Obama or Michelle Obama to be in the window that's a bit of a problem but I think that's something we've been working more closely and I think we are pushing to change one of the other areas of disruption to get books out into bookshops into communities recognize that often people need a little bit of easy way of finding so all our long lists for the judge prize are on the website our judges for all the years have a separate page it's all linked to their own work so you can find work by our judges we have an, an a running blog called books we love that you need to read and that's writers of color recommending books by writers of color so there they're very there's a range of it you know by women poetry queer writing and you're right it's a completely different world Stories and narratives every year, round about this time, once the submissions start, is I'm not a judge, I haven't been a judge for quite a few years, but I read through the Jollock Prize submissions. And I have to say, yes, the long list is always incredible, but the most extraordinary books I read through the year, 90% of those are through the submissions. And many of them may not make the long list, but they are truly extraordinary books. And the fact that they don't often have the kind of push and support means that far too many people, far too many readers who are hungry for these don't get access to them. That, sadly, is also a failing of the publishing industry. Because... And that is indeed a failure because they could be selling far more books. I have a report floating around somewhere on my desk from 2014, and it's one of the one of the consultant companies who had put together a document. And it's roughly a billion pounds a year. If you want to call it the black and brown pound, off books that are not, that is not being tapped. And I think that's the kind of calculations the publishing industry will need to make and very quickly. Prior to Brexit, the EU made up 35% of British publishing market. So 35% of the books published in Britain and by Britain were sold in the EU. Part of the reason that worked really well was because, of course, we were part of the EU, so all the various barriers weren't in place. As a third country, as an outside EU country, we are now going up against the behemoth of English language publishing, i.e. US. There's no way we're competing. Britain cannot compete. So that's a third of a market gone. That market has to be made up. And that's got to be in here. But that means the publishing industry is going to have to pay attention to who and what. At the same time, there's a really interesting one to think about. One out of every three kids in schools in England and Wales is a child of colour. So if you think about a 12-year-old, in six years, that's an 18-year-old. That 18-year-old is your future customer without parental intervention. How are, we tack- how are we getting through to them? And it's not going to be the hamster novel. And it's not going to be the home counties, you know, weekend in the country house novel that's going to get through to them. And so publishing needs to do a lot of thinking and, you know, changing as well. And hopefully we're the people who are going,
0: look, the wonderful work still exists, already exists. All you need to do is to get it out of I love the, the the blog. I read it religiously, and I am very jealous that you get to read all the books of the submission. And I absolutely love the fact that recently the even the Jack Prize has included the category of young adult and children's book yeah. books because I am a long fan of young adult books. I have read them for years, and I just love that that is now a part of the prize as well because it's. I think it's an area of literature that it's much derided. And, um, but there is so much beauty and gold in in that category as well. I completely agree. But I think there's
1: something else to think about. And I completely agree. I love, I mean, there's so much. I mean, Tanya's, um, Trees, Catherine, Alex. I mean, I could keep going through all these amazing, 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 amazing writers, authors and children's authors. But here's something I want us to think about. If. We think about that, uh, that school statistic, one out of every three kids. If we are not including them in stories, what we're telling those kids, that's one out of every three kids, that they don't matter, that they don't belong, that if they do belong in a story that we're telling about Britain and ourselves and our society—they only belong as a background, as a side player, as 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 a non-speaking part, etc., etc. They don't deserve to be protagonists. We can make the moral case. That is, I hope your you know the listeners understand the moral case with that kind of exclusion. But there's something else we perhaps don't think about. How do we construct? How do we nurture a society of the future when we have ensured that a third of the population feels and knows that it is is excluded and not valued? That's a national, social, cultural, collective issue. We cannot possibly think of a future which deliberately excludes a third of the country. That's it. And I, and I think if there are teachers or I'm not even talking now publishers, but policymakers, that's what they need to pay attention because that's, that's a third of our future citizenry needs to be included and valued so they feel that they need to do something and be part of the society that they will they will grow up in
0: what kind of society are we going to have right if they grow up feeling excluded and then they wake up when they're older into a society that yeah has excluded them what what next what happens
1: you can't you can't build a creative just equal functioning society when you've excluded a third of your population so deliberately and so comprehensively and that's why it's not just about a moral case it's everybody's future every single person who lives in this country
0: and everything that we've spoken to since the beginning of this recording talking about the production of knowledge in academia and moving towards publishing and the stories that we're telling it all comes back to this to what kind of society are we building for ourselves mm-hmm. and for the future and how can we live in it and how can we function in it but also how can we thrive in it and how can we construct a better mm-hmm. more secure more safe thriving society if we keep on repeating the same mistakes exactly and again you know i think these
1: are i wonder how much of these are mistakes and how many much of these are kind of quite short term selfish deliberately ignorant decisions that are being made with an idea that somehow acting against the collective good can translate into individual profit or benefit and it may well do in short term but i think history shows us that that is not a sustainable form of behavior that is not a sustainable form of
0: living we must think collectively as well as individually absolutely thank you so much Sunny. this has been incredible I'm so glad we finally had this opportunity to talk and I've only gotten through like half of my planned questions we could have gone on for ages so thank you so much for taking oh your time
1: God. Yeah, thank you this was great I'm glad we got a chance to talk we've been working on this for a while so we have lovely to talk thank you That
0: was Professor Sunny Singh. You can find her on Twitter at Prof Sunny Singh. Next week, we will be talking to Ruth Ben-Ghiat. Ruth is a professor of history and a scholar of fascism and authoritarian leaders. And we will be talking about her research as well as her book, Strongmen: How They Rise, Why They Succeed and How They Fall, which is also our January book club pick. As always, I will be doing a giveaway, so to be in with a chance to win a free copy of Strongman, you can donate to the show over a coffee or send us a screenshot of your review of the show. Remember, if you join us as a monthly supporter, you will also get exclusive access to our live Zoom book club meeting at the end of the month. The link is in the episode description. This season, we not only want to climb up the charts, but cement our position as one of the top politics podcasts in the UK. So please, share our podcast widely, tell everyone you know, click the share button with wild abandon, send smoke signals, whatever you can do to get the word around. I know I sound desperate, but really, this show grows because of you, and I am so grateful. You know this is my passion project, and honestly, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for your continuous support. Thank you so much. You can find us on Twitter at EnemiesPod. I'm on Twitter at Maria W. Norris. Thank you so much for listening. And I'll see you next week for more Enemies of the People.